As I mentioned in the announcements this morning, our Lord's Day today is a little bit different than most of our gatherings as a church because we expect to culminate our day together this afternoon as we witness a baptism. And so baptism, of course, is one of two of the ordinances of the church. Uh, The other is the Lord's Supper. And both of these ordinances, according to our confession of faith, are said to be ordinances of sovereign institution, appointed by our Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in the church until the end of the world. These are ordinances that Jesus himself has appointed by his own authority. And these are ordinances that are really bound up with the realities that are set forth in the gospel. They are gospel ordinances. One of the things about these ordinances is they never—they don't teach anything more than the gospel contains or really much that's less. Uh, it's a full presentation of the gospel when we understand what these symbols, what these ordinances are meant to picture, what they're meant to set forth to our minds and our understanding. Uh, We tend to be more knowledgeable about the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper simply because we do it more often than we do baptisms. But to God that would change, change, that we would see more baptisms uh, than we do. But that's our situation as a church. And um, certainly when we do uh, Lord's Suppers, it's all an expression of our corporate faith of our faith in Christ uh, together, and it's something, again, that's ongoing. Baptism is different in that it's really the expression of an individual's faith. Um, It's in the context of the corporate gathering of the people of God. I think sort of like as marriages tend to remind, remind us of our commitments and our vows, so baptisms should do that for each one of us who have also stood in the place where Emma will stand later on today in baptism. And we recall our own confession of faith in Jesus. And maybe we maybe reflect how faithful we've been to our commitment that we made that day. Are we carrying it out faithfully as those who are identified with Christ, in union with Christ, who are incorporated into the blessings of Christian salvation? So I thought it would be good to speak on the theme of baptism this morning just because we don't get to do it that often. And I don't get to expound it that often. Ask me the last time I preached on baptism. I really can't remember. I say a little bit about things when we go to different places and we have baptisms there. But usually we don't have a lot of time to really expound it very deeply. So I began to just think about the matters of Christian baptism. Shared a lot with my wife last evening. Uh, Took to just writing out things. And it got to like seven pages and I had hardly anything said. So I just figured um, I'm going to get as far as I can this morning, say a little bit more, God willing, this afternoon. Uh, To help us, I want to look at a passage of Scripture. You know me, I'm a textual preacher. I preach from the text of Scripture itself. Just can't deal with themes just apart from the text. So let's look at the text. The text I've chosen is probably an unusual one for a message concerning baptism. It's Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, in the first uh, seven verses, this is an incident that occurred in the ministry of the Apostle Paul when he came um, to the city of Ephesus. Uh, We read in Acts 19 in verse 1, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, major city in the province of Asia Minor. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We 
you've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about twelve men in all. This passage of scripture, when I've alluded to it or brought it about in teaching, it's usually been in discussions like, the matters of tongues and prophecy and whether this is an incident of a special, of a second blessing second blessing theology often the Pentecostals, Charismatics will refer to this I don't believe that this is really a question that these people are coming to faith or coming to an increased faith that they didn't have before this is a new faith that they have now in Jesus when they didn't really know much about Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the Gospel for these were disciples of John the Baptist but the big question I want to set before us this morning is why does Paul rebaptize these people? He comes amongst this group of disciples where he probably doesn't know a whole lot about them. They're religious, evidently. They meet for prayer. They meet for Bible readings. They meet for some kind of exhortation. They talk about the Messiah. They talk about John the Baptist. They talk about many good things that have the Christian ring to it. And Paul comes among them and he just assumes this is a group of disciples of the Lord Jesus. But yet, as he is among them, he begins to smell something's not quite right. There's something not quite kosher going on here. I shouldn't say that really about a group of, uh, well, these probably were Jews, followers of John the Baptist, so maybe he didn't think there was something kosher that was there. There's something that was wrong. And just why he thought it, it's really hard to say. The text doesn't really tell us. But he asked the question. Something was there that brought him to ask this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Evidently you believers in something, but there was something about them that may have indicated that they did not possess the Holy Spirit. And their response is no. I'm sorry. And the assumption would be that they would have the Holy Spirit when they believed. But they said no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit or even absent the knowledge again it's hard to think that they didn't know about the Holy Spirit because the Old Testament does not shy away from talking about the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God is spoken of often in the Old Testament so it may be that we've not been heard that the Holy Spirit has been given or that the Holy Spirit has been received since Paul's question was did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed and it may have been that the intent of what they said was well we've not heard that there has been a reception of the Holy Spirit you know, what you're talking about we've not heard is something that people know about just yet and so Paul then asks them into what then were you baptized and he assumes that if they were baptized they were baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit that there would have been a knowledge of the Holy Spirit and a promise that Jesus gave that the Holy Spirit would be given to his disciples if they had in fact received Christian baptism which by definition is baptism into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
And the response to the question is that they were baptized into John's baptism. These were disciples of John the Baptist. History seems to tell us from people like Josephus that there was something of a John following that was not part of the Christian church in the ancient world. And so Paul came amongst a group of people that had been impacted by the preaching of John the Baptist. And they were followers of John the Baptist. And they were in Ephesus, this city of uh, Asia Minor, and uh, they gathered together to meet around a common faith and a common interest. But this does not yet appear to be full-blown Christian faith. And so Paul tells them, this is an opportunity now to Paul to instruct these disciples of John the Baptist. Paul said to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. John's message was, that one comes after me who is greater than I. I baptize in water. He will baptize in the Holy Spirit and in fire. John's message was, don't believe in me. Believe in the one who comes after me. And Jesus and Paul now proclaims to them Jesus. Jesus is the one you should be believing on. And hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now it's common, it would be easy to understand why Paul would uh, tell these people who had been baptized with John's baptism, you need to believe. You need to come to the fullness of faith of the message that John preached that should lead you to Jesus. If you were a follower of John, it's inescapable you would come to Jesus because John was Jesus' forerunner. He came to prepare the way of the Lord. And the Lord has come, and the Lord is Jesus. You should believe on his name. But these were people that had received a baptism. A baptism in water, very much like Christian baptism. You wouldn't think, if you will see somebody at the Jordan River being baptized by John the Baptist, that there would be anything much different that John's doing in their baptism than what we're doing this afternoon. So much Christian art would say otherwise. I remember being in a church one time, seeing in the front of the church a picture of John the Baptist in the River Jordan, and he had this big jar of water pouring it on the head of the candidate for baptism, showing the view of the church in terms of how baptisms are to be done. You don't need to really get down into the water and to be immersed in the water. But uh, I do believe baptism means immersion. John did immerse baptismal candidates and so externally there wouldn't be much that would be different and yet Paul does not think that baptism of of John is sufficient he thinks there's something lacking he thinks there's something that needs something further to be done and that would seem to be odd you know why? because in the gospels the first apostles of Jesus in John chapter 1 were originally the disciples of John the Baptist Remember in John chapter 1, you have Peter and Andrew, who were John's disciples. And John was declaring that one would come after him, he's not worthy to tie his his sandal strap, um, and he would be greater than he is, that he would be the Messiah. He was not the Messiah. And then Jesus goes by one day, and John sees him, and he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. And then the following day, he's with his disciples, and Jesus again 
walks past and he says again, Behold the Lamb. And Peter and Andrew begin to follow Jesus. They had been John's disciples. They had baptized with the baptism of John. And yet they come to Jesus and say, Rabbi, where do you abide? Where are you living? And Jesus says, Come and see. From that day, they became followers of the Lord Jesus. But there's no indication in that narrative that then Jesus turned to them and said, Well, you got baptized by John the Baptist, but that's not sufficient. You need to be baptized by me. In fact, in John's Gospel in chapter 3, it says that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. But then it goes on to say, But not that Jesus was baptizing. Jesus wasn't the baptizer. John was the baptizer, and in the case of the followers of Jesus, it was his disciples who were doing the baptisms. It wasn't Jesus. But there's no account of Jesus rebaptizing these people, or that it was necessary for John's disciples to be baptized again. But Paul saw, saw a necessity. He saw there was a vital necessity for baptism to be done. And I want to just give you something of a sense of why that might be. Now, when you think of John the Baptist's baptism, and you ask, why in the world was God send this man out into the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan? Well, rituals of washing were not uncommon amongst the Jews in the ancient world. In fact, in the Old Testament as well. And generally speaking, if you gained a picture of why God would cause washings to occur, it usually was in conjunction with his appearing unto people and entering into covenant relationship with people. And so they would need to go through a ritual of sanctification. It happened in chapter 19 of the book of Exodus when the people of Israel came to Mount Sinai. And God was going to appear on Mount Sinai and give the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. But he tells Moses to tell the people to sanctify themselves. And part of the sanctification for the people of Israel to meet with God on Mount Sinai is they needed to be washed. There needed to be cleansing, even of their garments. They needed to come to God as a purified, clean people. Think of it, they're walking through the wilderness they're going from place to place in desert land with the heat of the sun beating down upon them. And there would be sweat and there would be grease and grime and dirt. And so externally their bodies would be filthy. Now you're going to meet with God. Prepare to meet with God appropriately, but take a good bath. Get that grime off of your body. But even more, there needs to be the purification of their hearts. They need to be prepared and ready to meet with the pure and the holy God. So the approach to God would mandate purity. Purity of heart and mind and body. In fact, in one of the Psalms, one of those approach Psalms, we find in the book of the Psalms, speaking about our approach to God, it asks the question, who will ascend into the mountain of the Lord? And the temple was on the mountain. It was on Mount Zion. If we, people were to approach God, how are we to approach Him? How are we to ascend to the mountain of the Lord? And it speaks of Him that is of clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Those were the qualifications to meet with God. Folks, you're coming to meet with a pure and a holy God. You need to prepare yourselves. You need to clean, clean your hearts. You need to clean your minds, clean your souls. 
You think of Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter, I'm sorry, yes it is Isaiah chapter 1. It speaks of the picture of the people coming to temple worship with their sacrifices while their hearts were still wedded to their sins. They were guilty of every manner of injustice and of indifference to the needs of others. They were all consumed with greed. They were all consumed with their pride. They weren't concerned about God, whose presence they met, because what they were doing is they were seeking to blend together, to mingle together, iniquity and the solemn meeting. Your hands are filled with, with blood, is what Isaiah tells them. You've got to clean your, hand, clean, uh, clean your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's actually James chapter 4. But it's almost a direct transcript of what Isaiah is telling the people they have to do. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they were red with crim- as crimson, they sh- shall be as wool. There needs to be cleansing. There needs to be a change that takes place, that will take place. As you seek to deal with the reality of your dirtiness, of your filthiness, of your sinfulness. And so when the approach to God was made, it had to be with clean hands and pure hearts. The priests of the Old Testament, when they entered into their labors, they had to take baths, full body baths. And they had to put on pure clothing that was perfectly was suited for the worship of God. Because they were coming into God's presence. You can't enter into God's presence unclean. Right outside of the sanctuary that they were told to build, of the tabernacle, and later the temple. You know what was outside the sanctuary? Right next to the altar of burnt offering that was needed to be, needed to be sacrificed before entering the presence of God. It was also for the priests who did the service of the Lord within the tent of the sanctuary, in the holy place. There was a great basin for washing. There's a great basin for, clean, for, for uh, to be clean. The priests had to clean themselves, clean their hands, clean their feet. They had to clean themselves to enter into the presence of God. Cleansing was vital. And so when John came into the wilderness of Judea, what is he doing? He's simply replicating what the Old Testament required. Israel is a nation that sinned. Israel is a nation that forsaken the Lord. They'd given themselves over to practices that were just external, that didn't touch the heart. He calls them to repent. He calls them to change. It's a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. It was an issue of sin. They came to Jordan confessing their sin. And then they were plunged into water. And I ask you something. Was that sufficient to cleanse them from sin? Was that sufficient to cleanse their hearts and their, heart, and their consciences from sin? And the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 10 tells us it wasn't. Even the blood sacrifices could never cleanse the conscience. The waters of cleansing could never fully bring forgiveness. Could never fully bring cleansing. But then Jesus comes on the scene. And interestingly enough, you know what Jesus does? Jesus goes out to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And John saw the incongruity of that. He said, I have need to be baptized of you. You're the greater one in this relationship. And as John viewed Jesus as the Lamb of God, he knew this was the Lamb without spot or blemish or any such thing. This one had no need to confess his sin. He had no need to be cleansed of sin. 
And yet Jesus goes into the waters of baptism and is baptized by John. John, Jesus says, you know, allow it now to fulfill all righteousness. What's happening here? Well, again, part of Paul's understanding of what baptism is in his letters is that baptism identifies you. When you, are ident- when you are baptized into the name of John or into the baptism of John, you, like these 12 disciples at Ephesus, become identified with John. John becomes your teacher. John is the one in, whose light, in light of whose instruction you live. Paul could speak in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of the people of Israel being baptized into Moses. I want you to turn to that passage because I think it's pivotal to understand Paul's view. Why it is he, he baptizes these disciples in Ephesus was because Paul understood baptism as a matter of identification. I want, do not want you to be aware, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Go back to the book of Genesis. In chapter 14, the cloud of God's presence covered the whole landscape. Came coming between the coming chariots of Pharaoh's army and the people of Israel who were backed up against the sea. Remember that scene? They're backed up against the sea. They can't do anything. There's a sea there. Where are they going to go? And you have the chariots of Pharaoh coming hard-pressed upon them. And God comes in a cloud. And that cloud became an impenetrable obstacle in the way of their approach to the people of Israel. All of Pharaoh's army's endeavor to bring the people back was not going to succeed. God was going to be their protector. God was going to stand in their way. And then lo and behold, in the next scene, what does God do? Well, overnight he brings that wind to come and to cause the sea to divide in two. Two mountainous walls of water on each side. And in the middle there's the dry land. And the people of Israel then begin the process of passing across the sea on dry land. Our fathers were under the cloud, the cloud of God's presence, the cloud of God's protection. They all passed through the sea. That's the exodus. That's the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. But then Paul tells us something else occurred. That in that experience of God protecting them from the oncoming armies of Pharaoh, in that, in that scene of deliverance from Pharaoh's armies, They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What's he saying? He's saying there's something about what happened there when they were backs were up against the wall. They were dead meat. They were goners. They They were going to be destroyed or brought back into slavery. And yet God protected them and the agency was Moses. It was Moses that took the rod of God, put it over the sea. The sea divided. Moses became their leader. They now were to be identified as the people led by Moses. And so there was this baptism of identification with Moses in the water and in the sea. 
Paul's going to go on to speak about Christ being central to the whole scenario that goes on in the wilderness. We don't have time for that. But the point is, in his understanding, baptism means identification. That's why baptism into the name is an important consideration. Jesus is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Because Christian baptism means we become identified with the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, in the book of Acts, it becomes baptism in the name of Jesus, but that does not become a different thing. Because again, you cannot have Jesus without the Father who sent him into the world, nor the Spirit whom the Father and Son sends to be with us. It's the Trinitarian God who is at work in salvation. But because we believe in Jesus, and because faith is directed primarily to Jesus, and our approach to God comes primarily through Jesus, this Trinitarian faith, this Trinitarian baptism, becomes a little bit of shorthand in the writings of the New Testament writers. It's baptism into Jesus. Because with Jesus you get the totality of the triune God. The triune God who's revealed in Jesus, whom we approach through Jesus, is the one in whose name we are baptized. This is the God whom we become identified with. And so why is Paul intent upon rebaptizing these people? It's because he wanted the point of their identification. Now, to be clear, it's not John the Baptist that you're a disciple of. It's Jesus, who is the Lord, whom you are to be a disciple of. But then, we're still left with the question, how then can we get cleansed? It's the water we're talking about. They're going down into water. They're being baptized into water. Water doesn't cleanse us from our sin. First Peter says that baptism is the response of a good conscience towards God. It's not the cleansing of the, of the body. It's not the, the flesh being cleansed by water. Water doesn't cleanse us from our sin. But this Jesus who was baptized, interestingly enough, he has something to say to his disciples on an occasion prior to his entrance into the city of Jerusalem when these disciples coming into the city were very much interested in this kingdom that Jesus was bringing in. In fact, they and their mother came to Jesus and said, you know, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom, we have this request of you. You know what that request is? Is that my sons would sit at your right hand, one on your right hand, one on your left, when you enter into your kingdom. They're thinking of an earthly kingdom. They're thinking of thrones set up in Jerusalem. They're thinking of Jesus conquering over the nation by military force. They're thinking of all things that are earthly and and military and uh, just the kingdom of this world. And Jesus says to them, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Or able to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized of with? Jesus makes reference to his death, his going to the cross. His dying for his people in terms of drinking a cup, a cup of divine wrath. That's often used in the Old Testament. The cup of judgment, the cup of wrath. Jesus is about to drink that cup when he goes to the cross and dies. And he's also to be baptized with a baptism. And that baptism that I think is being referred to there is referring to the way that God truly does cleanse his people. 
God cleanses his people many times in the Old Testament, not by reason of water, but by reason of suffering and affliction. Fire is an agent of cleansing, particularly of metal and its alloys, of taking that away and making it come forth as pure. You have the refiner and his, fi- and his fire, refining metals. And God's people are, are refined. They're brought into a place of suffering that they might come out as gold, that they might be cleansed. And Jesus takes up this matter of being thrust into or immersed into flames and fire and affliction and suffering to indicate the kind of death he will die. It's a death of suffering that will bring pardon and cleansing and forgiveness so that the writer to the Hebrew says having made purification of sins. How does he make purification of sins? In the suffering death he died on the cross. And the fact that he was baptized with the suffering that our sins deserve so that our sins would be pardoned and we would be cleansed. He makes purification of sins and is set down upon the right hand of God. It's Jesus who makes the connection between baptism and the cross. Baptism and the death that he would die. So when we go into the waters of baptism... It's not just that we think of Jordan. How Jesus stood in Jordan and was baptized to identify himself with us as sinners. That is part of it. But more than that, we become identified with Jesus in his death. And the fact that Jesus went to the cross to be baptized in a baptism of suffering that inundated him, that immersed his holy soul to the extent that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's a baptism of suffering. And it's a baptism of suffering that he endured for the purification of our sins. So make no mistake about it when you go into the waters of baptism. It's not water that cleanses. It's the Jesus who was inundated with the storm of divine judgment upon the cross was baptized with the baptism of suffering for our sins. That is the way of our pardon. So Paul understood that baptism not only has changed drastically from Jordan and John's baptism in the way of the question of who are you identified with? Are you identified with the triune God revealed in Jesus Christ? But it's also the question... Are you identified with the Jesus who went to the cross to make purification for our sins? And so Paul can express it in this way in the book of Romans in chapter 6. Here's what Paul does. He sees baptism as that which unites us to Jesus. Yes, that's identification. But more than that, it's an incorporation into the death he died the burial he experienced and the resurrection that he secured. Look what he says. In the answer to the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul rejects that out of hand. And he says, how can we who die to sin live in it? What do you mean? We've died to sin? How have we died to sin? Well, Paul's going to tell us. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ 
Again, baptism into Christ is identification with Christ. But identification with Christ, not just as he stood in Jordan to be baptized, but Jesus, as he went from Jordan through his ministry of obedience to his Father and declaring his word to go to the cross and to die for our sins. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? As Jesus was baptized on the cross in his death to suffer for our sins and to bring us purification for sin. So baptism unites us to Jesus who died for us. We've been baptized into his death. We've been buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we are united to Jesus. And again, this is not something that's done by baptism, it's done by faith. Faith unites us to Jesus. Faith brings us to Jesus. Faith calls us, I mean, through the gospel we're called to faith in Christ, not faith in baptism, but faith in Christ. But faith in the Christ who came to identify with us sinners in the life that he lived and in the death that he died. When we take our place in baptism, we take our place to be united to Jesus by faith, to be identified with him, and to confess our incorporation into his death, so that the death that he died becomes our death, our death to sin. I mean, we'll still live in this world. We're going to be raised to live in this world. We haven't yet lost anybody in baptism. We don't go from baptisms to funerals. We don't do that. We bring everybody who goes down into baptism out of the, the water. But we live in our lives in a new way. In a way that Paul calls newness of life. And we live in newness of life because in principle we've died with the Jesus the world rejected, the world scorned, the world put to death. So that we no longer live for that world that is his foe, that was his enemy. We live for the Christ who died. We live to reflect the reality that Jesus who died upon the cross now lives in in the, in the glory of the heavens where he sits enthroned in majesty at the right hand of God and so we leave the past, we leave the old we leave the sordid we leave the compromise we leave the old man and we have now become new persons, new humanities in the Lord Jesus Christ so that if anyone is in Christ behold a new creation all things are passed away Behold, all things become new. And so Paul couldn't just leave it. Hey, you're baptized with John's baptism, that's enough. No. John's baptism said nothing of the cross. John's baptism said nothing overtly of Jesus. Now the need is for these men at Ephesus to take their place in the waters of baptism with a wholly new orientation of life. Now oriented not to John, but to Jesus. Not oriented to the thoughts that somehow a watery ordinance of getting wet in, in water is going to 
cleanse us from our sins, but dependent upon the one who died for us, who went to the cross and purchased us unto God through the shedding of his precious blood, who cleansed us from our sins through the shedding of his own precious blood. And so what we're going to witness this afternoon is going to witness somebody taking that commitment, that place of identification with Jesus. I'll say more about identification with the people of Jesus this afternoon, but identification with Jesus in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And so when we witness it, let's see it through those eyes. Let's see it in the way that Paul saw it. In a way that does picture, to an extent, the reality of cleansing, but not just any cleansing. It's not just the kind of priestly cleansing in the Old Testament that is washed with water. It's cleansing through the shed blood of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's an ordinance that is not that different in terms of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper leads us to think upon Him who shed His blood and gave His body. Baptism does that too. Because it was in the shedding of His blood. It was in the offering up of His body upon the cross. Jesus was baptized with the inundation of divine wrath upon Him that our sins would be cleansed. Let that be before your thinking. Let that be the things you meditate upon. As Emma, you're baptized today. And as you as God's people witness that baptism and recall your own, that's what you are remembering. That's what you are committed to. Committed to live your life. Identified with Jesus. When I came to faith as a young believer, there were people who heard that I came from a Jewish family and uh, didn't have much in the way of much instruction in Judaism, but you know, I like bagels and I like all the kind of food that uh, they offer at the Jewish deli. That's my background. That's my the culture I came out of. And there were people who were telling me, "Don't forget your identity, huh? What do you mean? Don't forget you're Jewish." And uh, I thought, well, that's really strange. I thought I had an identity, and it was in Christ. Well, that is our identity. Don't let anybody tell you you have a different identity. Your identity is not with a nation. Your identity is not with a sect. It's not with Baptists. Your identity is in Christ, with Christ, centered in Christ. That's where you are when you confess Him in baptism, or should be. And that's where you need to be need to remain, that you never veer from Jesus, you never move away from Jesus, you find your identity and your service and your reason for being your joys, your happiness in Christ, your hopes coming glory, all wrapped up in the person of the one who came from heaven's glory to identify with us, to be baptized in Jordan, but not just to be baptized in Jordan, to be baptized on the cross and so that you are yourself incorporated into him by a living faith that his death is your death to the world, the flesh, the devil, all your ambitions, that you might follow his ambitions for you. You might live for his honor and his glory all the days of your life. 
and you might do it as someone who is dying to the old to rise again to newness of life, to live for the new, with the faith that is set before you to live your life to the praise of the glory of his name. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father, we are thankful for these lines of truth in the scriptures and we're thankful for the achievement of Jesus for our cleansing. That the purification of sin is not found in water. It's found in the precious blood of Christ. We're thankful for the blood that once for all atones and now that pleads before your throne. And we're thankful that as we see this baptismal ordinance, though it waters before our eyes, yet something more is to be understood. That this matter of death, burial, and resurrection all points us to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the reality that cleansing comes through what he did upon the cross for our salvation. We pray that those thoughts would be at the forefront of our thinking as we see the baptism of Emma today. Be the forefront of our own thoughts. We pray that you would draw near with your presence and blessing. And we ask you to hear our prayers, instruct us in these things, help us to meditate upon your truth, and to live in the light of it, for the sake of Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.